familiar with, but not totally familiar with uh, outside of the, the first verse, which um, just happens to be the, uh, the title of a, a favorite Christian hip-hop song of mine um, by an artist named Shylin. So I was very familiar with the opening verse, but not super familiar with the entirety of the chapter, and have since fallen um, deeply in love with this passage because of its uh, conviction, number one, and then of its teaching and of its rescue, number two. And I pray that you will find it as helpful in your life as I have found it helpful in my life. I'm not going to read the entirety of the chapter at the beginning. I'm, uh, we're, we're just going to work our way through the chapter uh, together. So that, that'll be our approach this morning. I have tagged the text this morning with a sermon title called The Idiocy of Idolatry. Today's text teaches us that it's idiotic to worship idols. The psalmist pulls back the curtain of our hearts and shows us the insanity of idolatry. This song can be saying in four words. Y'all remember the old game show where you, you competed? Who could, who could guess the song and how many notes? Anybody remember the name of that show? Name that tune. How many notes could you name that song? Well, this song could be sung in six words. And that's the six words. Trust in God, not in idols. Trust in God, not in idols. I don't know if you're picking up on the theme so far through our sermon series in the Psalms, but almost every week, the main idea or the theme of the Psalm is trust God. Don't you find it interesting that the longest book in the Bible, the book of Psalms, which contains the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, has at its very core, no matter, and we've, we, so far we have been, I believe, except for one, and we'll get to it in a couple of weeks, the Psalms are divided up into five different books. We have had a Psalm out of each one of those sections, except, I believe, section uh, two so far, but we're going we're gonna to do a couple out of section two, book two, very soon. But no matter which of the sections or the books of the Psalms that you read, that the, the theme of the songs are trust God. Why is that? Why, why do we have to, why does almost every Psalm have to repeat the refrain of trust God? Because I can tell you to trust God right now, and in five seconds, something could come into your life, and all the trust that you had could go out the window in five seconds. Why? Because we are, we are not stable. <laughs> Anybody in here feel the instability of your own soul, psychology, emotions, feelings? And some of you feel like you're on, back on, on the playground on the teeter-totter. It just depends on what's the other end, whether you're up or down, high or low. Well, the psalmist gave us 150 songs to sing to remind us, trust God. Trust God. And in this one, trust God, not idols. Now, 
let, let, me, let me do a little teaching here for a second, or a contextual teaching, because you're going to need this for the end. So I'm going to give you this snapshot at the beginning, but I'm going to need you to hold this information to the end, because I'm going to bring it all the way back home at the end. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 is in a section of, uh, of Psalms called the Egyptian Hallel, H-A-L-L-E-L. The Egyptian praise of God. The Egyptian Hallel is, uh, begins in Psalm 113 and 14, and, and these two Psalms would be sung at the very beginning of the Passover meal. All right, so these six psalms are going to be sung during Passover, and in particular, during the Passover meal. Do you, do you remember that part of the uh, uh, upper room story where it says that when they finished the meal, they, they got up and they sang a hymn? More than likely, the hymn that they sung at the conclusion of the upper room meal was Psalm 115. Because typically, 13 and 14, 113, 114 are sung before you begin to eat. Psalm 115 is sung immediately at the conclusion of the meal. And then Psalm 116, 17, and 18 would follow. Now there's a breakdown of these psalms real quick. Psalm 113 is an, a song of introductory praise. Psalm 114, King David shows how God's providence freed the Jews from Egyptian bondage and made their survival possible. Psalm 116, I mean 15, now this is one you got to remember, it appeals for God's assistance. It is an appeal for God's assistance. Psalm 116, they, uh, we plead with God, they pled with God for survival. Psalm 117 invites the nations of the world to join the songs of thanksgiving for Israel's redemption. And then finally, Psalm 118 is a song of thanksgiving for the entire nation of Israel. Now, again, just remember, Psalm 115 was sung at the completion of the Passover meal as an appeal for God's assistance. Now, let's look at the first three verses of Psalm 115, 1 through 3, okay? Not to us, O Lord, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. Each psalm we have studied so far, these last six weeks, remind us that all worship must begin with God, or it's not worship. Today's psalm reminds us of God's character. So that's, there's, there's going to be four simple truths this morning. Truth number one is that we learn from this song about God's character. And there's really three facets of God's character that this psalm focuses in on. And remember, this psalm is a psalm that pleads for God's assistance. And so this psalm reminds us of God's character. Well, what does it 
teach us about God's character? Well, number one, if you look back in verse 1, it says that he is steadfast, or that he has steadfast love. Now, I'm going to use a reference this morning to, to help us all kind of wrap our arms and our minds around this word, steadfast love. Two English words, one Greek word or Hebrew word. The Hebrew word here is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. And a guy named Ian Duguid, probably out of everybody that I've read, best helped me to kind of wrap my arms around what is being said when it is talking about God's steadfast love. He writes this, the word has said in the Old Testament is a description of what God, listen, does. Having entered a covenant relationship with his people, God bound himself to act towards them in certain ways, and he is utterly faithful to, listen, his self-commitment. Psalm 136 explores what the Lord has said means in its broadest possible terms. For each line concludes with the word, the steadfast or the hesed of the Lord endures forever. Because of the Lord's hesed, He created the universe and He rules it through His daily providence. Verses 5 through 9 and 25 of Psalm 136. Because of his hesed towards Israel, he redeemed them out of Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea and the wilderness into the Promised Land. For the same reason, he hurled the Egyptians into the sea and struck down the Canaanite kings before them. Verses 11 through 21. Both his deliverance of his people and his destruction of their enemies are aspects of the Lord's faithfulness to his promise to make Abraham a mighty nation. You remember that? All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, Abraham, you're going to have descendants that are going to be greater than the stars of the sky or the sands of the sea. Even when his people sinned against him and faced the consequences of their sin, they could still appeal to the hesed of the Lord. As the writer of Lamentations, interesting, you bring this up, um, Thus, in the, in the midst of the destruction of Israel in 586 B.C., surrounded by the evidence of the Lord's faithfulness to judge wickedness, rebellion, and sin, he cast himself on the unchanging character of God, affirming, listen, Lamentations 3, 22 th uh, through 23, the hesed, or the steadfast love of the Lord, never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Can you finish it? Great is your faithfulness. In Psalm 23, 6, the psalmist declares that the Lord's goodness and His loving kindness will pursue Him all the days of what? His life. The word pursue, listen, it normally describes the action of a pillaging army and covenant curse. But the psalmist is convinced that instead of the covenant curse he deserves, the Lord's faithful love and goodness will hunt him down relentlessly instead. Man, what a picture, right? I mean, nobody wants to be hunted down unless you're being hunted down by steadfast love. I 
And some of us would say, why would I ever run from that? That's a good question. Why do we run from steadfast love? The fullness of the Lord's... I'm finishing up here with what Ian Duguid said. The fullness of the Lord's has said is seen in the cross. There the true has said, Jesus Christ himself, the only human ever to be a loyal, to be loyal to the Lord and to his neighbor in every aspect of life, was treated as the covenant breaker and cursed for the sin so that we who are unfaithful might be clothed in his faithfulness and thus redeemed. In this way, God's original covenant purpose to have a people for his praise was faithfully accomplished. Now listen to these last words. This is beautiful. The Lord has said, will never let us go. In the midst of life's trials and tragedies, we must cry out to the living Lord in confidence that nothing in all creation can ever separate us from what? The steadfast love of the Lord that chose us before time began. It is sanctifying us in the present and will faithfully bring us to our eternal home. You know why you love the Lord this morning? Because <laughs> He faithfully chases you down in his love and loves you. What does the Bible teach us? You didn't love me first. I first loved you. And the only reason why you keep loving me today is because I keep chasing you down in my love. Make sure this comes up on the screen. This is the Hesed of the Lord, okay? I've said this several times since we've been in Psalms, but I thought I'd put it up on the screen so you could write it down and, and commit this to memory. The Bible promises us what? I will never leave or forsake you. And I said that theology works forwards and backwards. You forsake or you leave, never will I. I love it when a verse works forwards and backwards. You can't mess that up. Even, even a dyslexic person can't mess that one up. They get it right. Why? Because the Lord wants us to know that no matter what. How about some bad English? I ain't going nowhere. <laughs> I ain't going nowhere. In a world full of non-committal human beings, it is often difficult for us to believe somebody ain't going somewhere. Especially when that person really knows who you are. Listen, and if you don't think that God really loves you, the fact that He knows all about you way more than any other human being knows about you, and he still says, I ain't going nowhere? Or to tell you how great his love is. Because to, to me, I've always said, the truest form of love is the kind of love that knows everything about you and stays. To be fully known and yet to be fully loved. That's the gospel. 
But here's what else we know about the Lord. Not, not only does he have steadfast love, I didn't mean to spend so much time on that, but, but he's sure. He, he's sure. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but just the last word, it says that his faithfulness, the, the Lord is faithful. Uh, the, the Lord remains the same no matter what is going on in our world. But the world can change, and circumstances can change, and you can change, but He ain't changing. You, you don't believe that? How about Hebrews 13a? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. That means the God of Genesis one is the God today. The God of pre-Genesis 1 is still the same God today, and He'll be the same God tomorrow, and He'll be the same God ever how long He tarries for this earth. And then guess what? He'll be the same God forevermore. We don't have to worry about showing up in heaven and finding a different God in heaven than we read about in the Bible. If anything, we finally realize fully and totally that everything we read really is true about who He is. But I love what Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. <laughs> do you get what God is saying there? What did he call them? The children of who? Jacob. You know what God is saying in that verse? He said, you better be glad I don't change because I've made a covenant with you and you've broken your side of the covenant. You've broken the covenant so many times that if I was a changing God, you'd be dead. You'd be dead. I'd have consumed you in my wrath in a heartbeat. But the only reason you're not consumed is because I made a covenant. And I didn't stake my covenant on your reputation. I've stuck it on my reputation. Now, you see, this is the kind of stuff you've got to get worked into your heart because if you don't, you'll forever live on the seesaw of life. This is how you preach to your emotions. This is how you rewire your psychology. Why? Because you, you not only got to remember that, that God has steadfast love, and, and some of y'all are up and down all the time spiritually because, you, I mean, it's like you've gone out there and picked a rose or something or, or a four-leaf clover, and it's like, He loves me, He loves me not. He loves me, He loves me not. And then whatever you get down to, that, that's, your, that's where you are spiritually. You can't do that. And some of us have forgotten how sure God is and how trustworthy He is and how faithful He has been. But the, there's a third part of His character that we really need to get deep down into our hearts. And that is He's sovereign. I love verse 3. I, I just love verse 3. Did you see what it says? Our God is in the heaven, and He does whatever He pleases. Now, that's the kind of God I need. Not, a kind, not the kind of God that does what I want Him to do, or does what I please, but the kind of God that does what He pleases. Because, you see, I need a God smarter than I am. And, and when God doesn't do all that you please, what your problem is, is that... You're reducing God down to human level. 
You, you really don't want a God. You, you want something you can control or manipulate. You know what you really want? You need an idol. And that's where you're headed. You're, you're headed right down the path to idolatry because you've... You will have to have a God to worship. And if you will not worship the sovereign God, you will worship a created God. More about that in a moment. This attitude of God either grants you peace or causes you to be petrified. Some people are scared to death of a God who does whatever he pleases. Because that means he answers to no one. But listen. If he's got the kind of character we've already said he's got, then you don't have to worry about him answering to anybody. You see, we don't like human beings that are totally autonomous and don't have any overarching authority over them. Why? Because we know that human beings are not, don't always do what's right, and therefore you cannot give a human being total authority, right? Why? Because absolute authority corrupts absolutely but when you've got the character and the nature of god he is he can be sovereign and above anybody and everybody and you can sleep on your pillow at night how about how about i use a children's illustration this morning the the chronicles of narnia if you haven't read it you should read all seven books and the line the witch in the wardrobe Aslan, this is a quote from the book. Aslan is a lion. The lion? The great lion? Ooh, said Susan. I, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Isaiah 46.10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He's not a tame lion. And he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And we can rest in his sovereignty. This song teaches us about God's character, which gives us confidence in the second truth from this song, which is God's care. Which is God's care. So look at verses 9 and 11 real quick. God's care. It says, O Israel, now watch, trust in the Lord, I've told you before, there's that capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, that's God's covenant name. So they're, they're, the psalmist is telling them, sing, trust the covenant God. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. I've always, back in the worship war days, where we used to fight about music, we don't do it near as much as we used to, the big fight was about, I don't like singing the same chorus 20 times. Well, then there's just parts of the Psalms that you're not going to like. Like Psalm 136, where it says, it repeats, 
Verse after verse after verse, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Here we have the, the three repeat of trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord, trust in the Lord. Why? Because we are preaching to our hearts. Why? Because the Bible is emphasizing to us, this is important. You must trust in the Lord. And trust just means to throw yourself to the ground, surrendering your strengths and your abilities to another by leaving yourself completely open and vulnerable. Y'all are all doing it right now. Look, I'm the only one not trusting right now. Y'all are all trusting. Y'all all came down and just plopped right on down in the chair. You are, look, if you said, Brother Jason, I need a visual definition of trust, I can't give you a better one than what you're doing right now. What are you doing? You're resting all blank pounds of your body on that chair. I ain't giving out a number. But y'all know what you weigh. No matter what your driver's license says. The scale don't lie, but your driver's license will. I've often thought, you know, when Marcus and, and, and Brother Fred and them pull people over and they're looking at their license and they're looking at the license and looking at them, looking at the license, like, something don't quite match up here. Good thing you can't get a ticket for lying on your driver's license about your way. But listen, we trust the Lord. You're trusting right now. You've put all of your weight onto that chair. And that's what the Lord is telling us to do. This is what the psalmist is asking them to sing. Why? Trust in the Lord. Trust in what? In the Lord. In His name. That's what we trust in. We trust in the name of the Lord. Why? Because that's His covenant. We are, that's His reputation. I mean, look, you don't know who made that chair, so you didn't trust that chair based on its reputation. But listen, we make purchases all the time based on reputation, right? I'm buying that car because I believe Honda is better than all other cars because of its reputation or whatever it might be. And so what the Lord is saying and what the psalmist is saying is put all your weight on the Lord. Why? Because his reputation says you can do it. Why? Because he has proven time and time and time again that he is worthy of trust. And listen, and the Lord is going to do what he says he's going to do, not because you've trusted in him, but because he staked his activities on his name. That's why often the Bible will say to us, and, 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 and the people of the Bible will say, Lord, do this not for our sakes, but for your sake. Do this because of your reputation, not because of our actions. And so God cares for us, and he shows us his care because he says, you know what, you can trust my name. But not only can we trust his name, but we can also trust his nature his nature and if you look back in those three verses again 9 10 and 11 you see the two words he is that's his nature this is who he is so what is he he is our help and he is our shield he is our help and he is our shield uh, let me just say this another way he provides he provides Anybody in here know anything about God's provision? Anybody? I mean, how long would it take you to, 
to count God's provisions in your life. Don't even try to answer that. Unless you're going to say eternity, and I'm not even sure that's going to be long enough. He provides. He is our help. Psalm 46, which is one of the, the, our first psalm that we looked at, says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. God provides. But not only does he provide, but he also protects. So I'm just going to give you an old song. I was not familiar with this song until I was listening to a sermon by a, a pastor, and he broke out and started singing this song, and I thought, Lord, I said, how come I never heard that song before? And then I looked it up, and then I found a choir that sings this song. And I just put it on replay. I was like, I'm just going to have church all by myself right here. Now, look, look, I haven't learned the song well enough, so I'm going to look at my notes, okay? It says, be not dismayed, whatever be tied. Oh, I love that. What a great opening line. Be not dismayed, whatever be tied. And God will take care of you. Beneath his wings of love abide, God will take care of you. God will take care of you, though every day or all the way, he will take care of you. God will take care of you, no matter what be the test. God will take care of you. Lean weary one upon his breast. God will take care of you. God will take care of you, though every day over or all the way, he will take care of you. God will take care of you. He will take care of you. God will take care of you. He protects. He is our shield. Can I just say something to you as I leave this point? God will take care of you. The psalm not only expands our understanding of who God is, but who we are. So it, it not only shows us who God is, but it does show us and what God does, but it does show us who we are. And, and, and so this is, this is the painful part of the sermon. That, that was the praise. Now we go to some pain, and then we'll end in praise. We got to see our condition for what it is. Verses 4 through 8 just totally just, I mean, it just goes way deep down into our lives. Listen to what it says. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but they do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. That's a picture of idolatry. Augustine said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Humans were made to worship. Listen. If you don't get anything else, get this next little statement. When the Lord is not worshipped, idols will be. When the Lord is not worshipped, idols will be. What is our condition? Our condition is idolatry. That is our condition. What, what does it mean to be an idolater? 
I wish my clicker was working, but I'm just going to have to give it to you, hoping you can see it on the screen. Here's what, a, here's what a, 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 an idol is. Here's the definition of idolatry, okay? So you got idolatry and its definition. Are you ready? A counterfeit God or an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would, would feel hardly worth living. An idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly, hardly be worth living. That's idolatry. That's idol worship. Listen, if you're not a follower of Christ, then your life is lived in perpetual idolatry. Why? Because your heart, you're, you're constantly giving your heart to something else. You're constantly worshiping and elevating something to God in your life. That's the only way you can live. Your heart has to worship. It has to, it has to have something worth living for. Could be a job, could be a spouse, could be money, could be whatever it is, but there's something that makes your life worth living. And anytime that thing gets on shaky ground, your life gets on shaky ground. Right? Anybody ever had your anybody ever had your idol messed with? Hmm? Anybody ever had your idol taken away? 2008, when the stock market crashed, a lot of people had their idol taken away. That's why the suicide rate skyrocketed. Why? Because the object of worship had gone away. And when your object of worship goes away, guess what happens? You have no reason to live. Suicide takes place because somewhere along the way, the person who found no reason to live lost their idol. And therefore, they lost their will to live. They lost their reason for living because their idol was lost. And if you're not a follower of Christ, then you live in perpetual idolatry. But listen to me. For those who claim to be followers of Christ, be alert. Are y'all listening? You're prone to idolatry. <laughs> hey, you got this thing that's right here called a heart. And guess what? Martin Luther was right when he said, the heart is an idol-making factory. It'll pump them out. If it, if it does not worship God... It will pump out an idol to worship. It will create and make idols. Look at what Psalm 115.8 says. It gives us a danger. You got a definition, but then it gives you a danger. The danger is in the verse, those who make them make idols become like them, so do all who trust in them. Idols cannot provide or protect. Did you notice? They got eyes that can't see, hands that can't do anything, feet that can't walk, throats that can't speak. They are totally impotent. When we substitute something or someone for the living God as our object of worship, we become as powerless as the little G God we worship. 
Idols cannot help because they are made by the helpless. Did y'all get that? Idols cannot help because they're made by the helpless. Idols cannot give you what you need. They can only make you like themselves. Men shape their idols and their idols shape them. Your heart will only produce idols that say, Unto me, unto me be the glory. They are lifeless, therefore they produce lifeless worshipers. You become what you are, what you worship. So the question is, what are you worshiping this morning? You may not have idols in your homes, but your heart is an idol-making factory. Let, let me just run through some potential idol, idols this morning. Wives are helpmates, not our help. Husbands are to be the head, not our help. Spouses are gifts to be enjoyed, not to be worshipped. Children are to be built up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, not objects to build your lives upon. Wealth is to be leveraged for godly purposes, not to lead us into all sorts of pains. And work is a means to glorify God, not ourselves. Idols produce nothing because they are produced. They are the byproduct of imagination, of human wisdom and invention. When man follows his heart, he only produces death. Adam and Eve followed their heart, and what happened? They experienced death. Jesus followed the Father, and he brought life through death. So how do we put idolatry to death? How do you do it? Well, if you're not a Christian, you've got to turn from following idols and turn to following Christ. But, if you, for those of you that claim to be believers... What does the text tell you to do? Look at verse... So verse 8 said, Those who make them become like them, so do who all that trust in them. But look at what he says. He's talking to Christians. He says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. You see, those of you who are not following Christ, the only way you overcome and put idolatry to death is you've got to turn from your idols. But Christians, you must trust the Lord. You must trust the Lord, not your idol. So I'm going back to the to the to C.S. Lewis for help. All right. Now I'm going to a book within the series of the Chronicles of Narnia. I quoted from the line, "The Witch in the Wardrobe." Now I'm going to quote from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So bear with me here, but hey, when, when I came. Like when I came across this, I was like, I wonder if you know they made the movie, The Voyage of the Don Treader. I don't know if you've seen it, but Disney missed it on this. I watched their how how they portrayed this scene in the book, and instead of portraying it like I'm about to read to you out of the book, they just had Aslan let out this big roar and what happens happen. But but it's, the book is so much better. In, in C.S. Lewis' book, Voyage of the Don Treader, we meet a young boy, and his name is Eustace. He's a young man who is, as Lewis says, he's greedy, and he has dragonish thoughts in his heart. While these thoughts are in his heart, he finds a dragon's hoard, and he falls asleep on top of it. And when he wakes up, his thoughts have become reality, and he has become a dragon. 
He has become what he thought he what the way he thought. He doesn't even realize he's a dragon at first. Once he does, he goes through the first steps of spiritual transformation. He embraces the truth of his own brokenness. Eustace realizes that, quote, he was a monster and cut off from the whole human race, and then he begins to weep. Eustace isn't immediately transformed by just realizing his own monstrousness. But then again, it was clear to all of his companions that, quote, Eustace's character had been rather improved by becoming a dragon, end quote. He suddenly wanted to be someone better and was, in fact, quote from the book, anxious to help. End quote. He stated that doing reconnaissance, uh, he started doing reconnaissance missions on cold, and on cold nights, everyone leaned against him for warmth. Eustace discovers, we are told, the novel sensation not only of being liked, but of liking other people too. All of this comes quite simply from embracing the reality of being a dragon. It's not that he has become a dragon, it's that he was a dragon all along. The physical transformation revealed to him his dragonish thoughts that he had already been that had already been central in his heart. And when he embraced that, when he mourned that, when he desired change, his internal transformation began, which is when Aslan stepped into in to bring him into a new world. Now, listen. Aslan never tells Eustace his name in the book. He just simply says, quote, follow me, and takes him to a spring of living water. And Aslan tells Eustace to undress, and after the poor boy has done all that he can, Aslan says, now I'm going to read a few lines from the book. Here's direct quotes. This is what Aslan says. You will have to let me undress you Eustace says, I was, I was afraid of his claws. I, I can tell you, but, but I was pretty near desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep, I thought he had gone right into my heart. And then he began pulling the skin off. It, it hurt worse than anything I've, I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff off. Just as I thought I had done it myself the other three times. Only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. I had turned into a boy again. Oh, what a picture. What a picture. When you, when you trust Aslan, when you trust Christ, he does exactly for you what he did for Eustace. It's not going to... You, did you get the part where Eustace said that I had tried three times before? But guess what? You know how I knew it didn't work? And I thought it was working at the time, but what I come to realize, it didn't work because there wasn't any pain involved in it. Why? Because to get rid of idols is painful. Why? To reorient your heart towards Jesus is going to be painful. Why? Because that lion, that, 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 that 
lion that can't be tamed. You've got to turn him loose into your life. And you've got to let him put his claws deep down into that sinful skin that still remains, that flesh, and let him begin. And it'll feel like he's going to just kill you. It hurts so bad. But yet, when it's all said and done, when the pain's over with, and you're standing there and you're looking at the mirror, you're going to see something that you hadn't seen. You're going to see what you should have been all along. And he's not into making us into boys. He's into, into making us like himself. How are you going to put idols to death? You've got to trust Jesus. And you've got to say, Lord, you and you alone know my heart. You know the idols of my heart. You know what my heart goes after. You know what my heart pursues. And what I need you to do is I need you to do in my life what you did in the life of Eustace. I, I need you to remove the idols in my life and replace them with you. And that leads me to the last point this morning. And this, this doesn't take any time. We see our calling in this text. And for the sake of time, I won't read verses 12 through 18. I'll encourage you to read them. It just tells us to remember all that the Lord has done. Remember how the Lord has blessed us. And then what it tells us to do is bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. And then it gets to the end, and it says, But we will bless the Lord from this time forth forevermore. Praise the Lord. Listen, our calling is to do two things. One is trust the Lord because He's a sure thing. Our calling is to trust the Lord because He is a sure thing. Listen, from, from the youngest in this room to the oldest, there's nothing more sure in this world than the Lord. Nothing. Nothing more sure. Put him to the test and find out how sure he is. But listen, our calling is to bless the Lord because it is the smart thing. Listen, and if you spend your life blessing the Lord, you won't have time to worship any idols. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Listen. Blessing the Lord is the smart thing to do. Because it ends, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. A lot of commentators say that this verse is the indicator that this was the point where Israel left their idolatry. They finally stopped their, their, their uh, uh, up and down, in and out of idolatry. They had finally come to realize that it is simply silly to worship idols. You want the Lord to bless your life? then bless the Lord. All other gods are inanimate objects, and they demand their worshipers to give them their all to be saved. 
Jesus, the Son of God, incarnated Himself and gave His all so that idolaters can be saved. Jesus left the upper room. I'm coming back to the beginning, right? Right here's the end. Jesus left the upper room singing a song which appealed for God's help, knowing that His time had come and there would be no help. No one would intervene, not even his father, who had intervened on sinful Israel's behalf numerous times. This time, a truly innocent one free from idolatry would be abandoned so that idolaters could be saved. Listen to this. We can, bl- we can trust and bless the Lord because he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him Give us all things. We can trust and bless the Lord because if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father in heaven give you, give good things to those who ask Him? We can trust and bless the Lord because at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. We can bless and trust the Lord because God proves His love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we can trust and bless the Lord for the sake of His steadfast love and His faithfulness. We can bless and trust the Lord. We should bless and trust the Lord. If you're smart, you're going to bless and trust the Lord. If you're smart this morning, you're going to turn from your idols and turn to the living God. If you claim Christ is your Savior, if you say that you're going, that you're on your way to heaven, then simply this morning, you must abandon the trust in your idols and put your trust fully in the living God. So Christians, I just simply want to ask you, What are you trusting this morning? Hmm? What in your life right now that if it it was gone in the next 60 seconds, your life would hardly be worth living? I know that's a tough question. I know that's a question we don't like to look at, face, or even want to think about. But listen, if you won't face that, then you've got an idol that is controlling and running your life. And one day, that idol will no longer be there. And guess what's going to happen? You're not going to have a reason to live. Why don't you deal with your idol now rather than have to lose your idol and then try to deal with it then when you are almost crushed and overwhelmed by the loss of the God that you have served? Let's pray. Father, and gathered in this room, ooh, you know our hearts. And that's, wow, that's scary. You know the idols of our life, whether we want to admit to them or not, whether we want to expose them or not, whether we want to ask ourselves that tough question or not, our idol is making us into its image, and it's not going to be hard for us to find that idol and identify that idol and know if we really ask ourselves if this was taken from me, my life either would not be worth living or it would be borderline worth living. 
It could be the mate we're sitting beside. It could be the children that you've given us. It could be the job that we go to tomorrow. It could be the bank account that we constantly check on our, on our, on our phones. It could be any number of items. But you, in your great love, you want to pull us out of our idolatry. You don't want us to trust in those things, but to trust in you. For you are our provision and our protection. You are the only reason worth living. And Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us husbands, wives, children, jobs, money, all these things which you have given us to enjoy as gifts. But Father, may we be ruthless with our hearts this morning and admit that, that your gifts have become our gods. And may we turn from them and turn to you and trust you completely so that we can enjoy these gifts completely. Father, some of us are ruining our lives this morning. Some of us have lost our joy this morning because our little gods are not performing. And just like a teeter-totter, we're up and down based on, on our little God's performance. When we could live a life of stability, when we could live a life of equilibrium, if we would just trust the unchanging God so that we can enjoy the gifts of God. So Father, in these next moments, as we, as we sing this final song together, I pray that you would stir within us a desire to turn and to trust so that we can bless your name. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing this final song this morning.